Well, first of all, Ronald, I found out that uh, I don't know why, but on most of these songs that we've sung today in the morning and tonight, I knew more than one verse. But when it came to it came upon a midnight clear, I have never sung any of those verses except the first one. Those were all new to me. Uh, so, you know, I don't know why that is, but, uh, it was different. Uh, we're not to this point yet, but, uh, when, you know, most of you know, I like tradition. I'm a traditional kind of guy. Uh, I like tradition. I'm not married to it. It doesn't have to be, you know, uh, but it's just kind of the way I'm wired a little bit, but sometimes Every now and then, I just wonder about our traditions. Uh, my last two years at Harding, I preached at a little congregation in Havana, Arkansas. And we would have maybe 20, 25 there on Sunday morning. And we might have 15 uh, back on Sunday night. You know, if you have 15 back, you kind of know, don't you, whether they were there on Sunday morning or not. But we would still do the whole, even though it was obvious everybody that was there was there Sunday morning, but we'd do the whole communion and, and, and I don't know, that just, I don't know why I thought about that tonight, but I just kind of thought that was odd that we went through the whole thing knowing that they were just going to walk to the back and come back to the front and walk to the back and come back to the front. But anyway, that's beside the point. I don't even know why I mentioned that. But, uh, We have been talking about the life of Moses. We're in the book of Exodus. We're not really studying the book of Exodus per se, but as you know, the life of Moses pretty well is the book of Exodus and then on a little later as well. And we looked at the very first week, we needed to kind of get a little perspective that from the end of Genesis, when Joseph invites Jacob and all of his brothers to come to Egypt And Pharaoh is very favorable to Joseph and has them settle in the land of Goshen. That there were 70 of them. It was a, it was a, it was a small tribe. Uh, a small family. Well, a large family. But anyway, that's about all it was. And from the end of Genesis to the very beginning of Exodus, 450 years goes by like that. And if we're not paying attention, we might not realize that. And this little group of 70, this little tribe, this little clan has now grown into estimates between one to two million people. So it's no longer a little clan. It is a formidable, you know, group of of folks. And over the 450 years, several different pharaohs have come and gone. And and then one came that didn't know anything about what Joseph had done. And you can imagine maybe a pharaoh who didn't know anything about it is like, what are all these foreigners doing over here? Why did we give them the land? Why are they over settled over here and, and you know, they got sheep and goats and cows and all this stuff. What are they doing over there? And so they basically enslaved the people of Israel or the, I guess they're not the people of Israel yet because they haven't gone to Israel. Well, they are because Jacob is Israel. So yeah. All right. Uh, so the Hebrews, the Jews, they basically enslaved them and, and Joseph, excuse me, Moses is born at a time when Pharaoh said that all the baby boys needed to be killed. And Joseph, I don't know why I'm on Joseph now, but Moses. Moses' mother puts him in the basket and sends him with his sister. And Pharaoh's daughter finds him. And he's raised for 40 years 
as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, I don't think that that meant like we were talking about this morning when God adopted us. We got all the inheritance. We got all the rights and privileges. We became a co-heir, a co-brother with Jesus. I have a feeling that's not the way it worked with Moses. Even though he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter, I don't think he was, I think he was probably always considered, you know, second best. Always considered an outsider, the black sheep or whatever, because he was a Hebrew and everybody knew he was a Hebrew when they, when he, she plucked him from the Nile River. And so after 40 years, you remember he kills an Egyptian and then he has to run away and he runs away and he gets married and, and, uh, uh, for 40 years, he's a shepherd there with his father-in-law. And then last week, we had the whole story about the burning bush and God calling Moses and saying, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses goes through all the excuses and he doesn't want to and this, that and everything else. And finally, God basically gets angry at him and says, you're going. I'm going to send Aaron with you, but you're going. And so that's kind of where we pick up the story a little bit. And we're going to be in Genesis, Exodus 5 through 10. We're not going to read all of that. I don't care what the clock says. We're not going to read all of that. But uh, you know the stories, basically. Genesis, Exodus 5 through 10 is where Moses begins to confront Pharaoh. And we have the story of the, the, the 10 plagues. Uh, on on Egypt and, and we're kind of going to get into all of that. Now, can you imagine Moses being gone for 40 years, coming back and going to Pharaoh? Now, we're not sure. We don't know. We're not sure about the genealogy, but this was probably either Pharaoh's uncle, excuse me, Moses' uncle, Moses' stepbrother, perhaps, or Moses' grandfather, maybe. We're not sure exactly who the Pharaoh is, but suffice it to say, Moses knew this person growing up in Pharaoh's household, and this person knew Moses. So Moses had been gone for 40 years, and he comes back. And as we look at this, we're going to see many lessons that we can learn between Moses and his dealings with Pharaoh. And so first of all, we're going to talk about the command. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, you can go to chapter 5. Afterward, chapter 5 and verse 1. Now that is afterward, after what's above it, which is where Moses and Aaron meet up and God says, go to Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. Let my people go, that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. I just cannot imagine how intimidating that must have been for Moses and Aaron. To enter the court of Pharaoh and say, the God of Israel, not the Egyptian gods, not your gods, Pharaoh, but the God of those people over there that you don't like, the God of those people over there that you're trying to kind of whittle down by, you know, killing their babies and all that kind of stuff, the God of those people is telling you 
to let the people go. Now, this is going to occur seven times in these next five chapters or whatever. Moses telling Pharaoh to let the people go. Now, I want you to put yourself in the place of Pharaoh. Not Moses. Put yourself in the place of Pharaoh. You've been raised to believe in these multi-gods. These different gods of Egypt. You've been raised not even knowing about Joseph. Now the the Pharaoh that Joseph knew. And maybe one or two after him. They may have known about the God of Joseph. Known about what Joseph had done as far as interpreting the dreams for Pharaoh and the seven years of famine or the seven good years and the seven years of famine and storing it all up and saving Egypt and all of that. You know, some of them may have known that. Not 450 years later. This Pharaoh knew nothing about the God of Israel. And so when Moses comes and says, the God of Israel says to let my people go. We have this wonderful quote from Pharaoh where he says, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Now, first of all, you remember when Moses was at the burning bush and he was making all these excuses and he didn't want to go. One of them was, you know, what if they don't believe me and what is your name and all these different things. But he was talking about his Israelites. You know, what if they ask these questions? Well, it's, it's Pharaoh that's asking the questions. I don't even know the Lord. Why should I listen to him? Why should I obey him? And you know, I can't blame Pharaoh, really. He knew nothing about the God of Israel. He knew nothing about what Joseph had done. All he knew was his gods that he'd been, you know, raised up in and and indoctrinated with. He knew nothing about the God of Israel. So that seems like a reasonable to me. Now, I know it's, you know, right in the face of God, right? I understand that. But from Pharaoh's perspective, that seems like a reasonable response. Who are you? Who is your God? Why should I listen to him? And you know, that is where we are in our society today. Our society today is becoming more and more of a society that doesn't even know who the Lord is. Now, most of us in here grew up in a time where all of our friends may have gone to a different church. But all of our friends believed in God. Everybody we knew believed in the Bible, especially down here in the South. Now, the Yankee over here, I don't know about him, but, you know, the rest of us in the South, you know, we, 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 everybody knew about God. Everybody believed in God. Everybody believed in Jesus. Everybody believed, you know, it's hard to find. I didn't know, at least that I, as far as I know, I didn't know. I didn't know any atheist growing up. I mean, maybe I did. I don't know. I didn't know anybody who had never heard about God. I didn't know anybody who had never heard about Jesus. We've come a long way. 
in our society and in our nation. And my guess is that we all perhaps now know people who don't believe in God, who are atheists. We may know people who have never even heard, and I'm not talking about over in Africa somewhere. I'm talking right here in the United States of America. People who don't know, never heard about God, never read any part of the Bible. The teenagers, I'm sure, many of their classmates, no religious background whatsoever. And you know, if you don't know who God is, why would you obey him? Why would you obey God if you don't know who God is? If you don't believe in him? That was what Pharaoh said. I don't know your God, therefore I'm not going to obey him. So that puts a little of the responsibility on us to make sure that the people around us know about God, that they've been taught about God. We can't get them to obey God until we teach them about God. We can't expect them to follow God's laws if they don't know God and they don't believe in God. We need to teach them. We need to talk to them about God. And that's kind of what is going on here a little bit with Moses. The problem is the same. The world does not know God. Just like the world, God is going to reveal himself to Pharaoh, but he will not listen. And there will be many in our world who will not listen. It talks in here, and I don't know, you know, we can get into the, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and then it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and you know, whatever the case may be, how all that works in there, and, and everything. But there's going to be some who just are not going to believe in God. Because pretty much they want to do what they want to do. And believing in God would require them to change some things. And they don't want to do that. Same is true here with Pharaoh. So Pharaoh says, beat it to Moses and Aaron. And then he says, you know what? (laughs) These Hebrews over here, they got too much time on their hands. If they're wanting to go out and worship their God and do a festival or whatever, we obviously aren't working them hard enough. There was no 40-hour work week. There was no six, seven, five-day work week or anything like that. And so Pharaoh says, we're going to make it harder on them. They were making bricks. I don't know anything about making bricks. Uh, although we did make some in, in Mexico. But, you know, apparently you use straw to make these bricks. I can see that. The straw would maybe make the consistency, make it stay together. I'm assuming. I don't know. But... I could have said that and you didn't know whether I knew or not, but now you do. So anyway, and, and so now they say, Pharaoh says, you're going to have to make the bricks without straw. And not only that, but we're going to raise the quota. We're going to raise the quota on how many bricks you have to make. And so they started getting harder and harder on the Israelites, on the Hebrews. And then the Israelite foreman, okay, the Hebrew foreman, who who are going to be the ones who are going to catch the brunt of it if they didn't make all these bricks, go to Pharaoh. They go to Pharaoh to try to get some relief. 
to try to get some help. When they really should have gone to Moses or Aaron or gone to God to find help. But they sought out Pharaoh to see if possibly they could get some relief there. And obviously they couldn't. And then after that didn't happen, guess what? You know, they blamed Moses. In chapter 5, beginning in verse 19... It says the Israelite foreman realized they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required for you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now we know the rest of the story of Moses and the Israelites and wandering in the wilderness and all this stuff. This is the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? With the Israelites complaining and grumbling and blaming Moses and blaming God and blaming, you know, all these different things. Here Moses is trying to lead them out of Egypt. To lead them to the land promised to Jacob, you know, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Let me get it in that order. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're blaming him already. You have made us a stench in the Egyptians. The Egyptians. You're, you're just making it harder on us. Why don't you go back? And I'm going to paraphrase here. Because I can imagine if I was a part of that mob, that's what I would have said. Why don't you go back to Midian where you came from? Why don't you just leave us alone? We were doing fine without you. Well, but were they really? They were slaves. Again, this is a prelude to what's going to happen. You remember they get a little further into it and, and, you know, they're up against the Red Sea and other things are happening. And they start grumbling and complaining, saying, oh, I wish we could go back to Egypt. Because we had it so good in Egypt. We had them onions, cucumbers, and leeks. I don't even know what a leek is. It's a vegetable probably. That's why I don't know what it is. It's like a Brussels sprout. It's worse than a Brussels It can't be worse than a Brussels sprout. But they, they never really realized how bad off they were. And they always seem to kind of want to go back to the way it was. And we have a lot in our world like that today. We have a lot of Christians sometimes who become Christians and then kind of long for the good old days. Long for the things they used to could do before they became a Christian. Maybe you've talked to people. I've talked to people who, who, who would talk about their past life and their eyes would almost glimmer. Almost get a gleam in their eye. Well, you know, before I was a Christian, I used to do this, 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 this. Can't do that now. I'm a Christian. I don't think that's the way God intends for us to be thinking when we realize that he has rescued us from our sins. So we have the command and then we have the conflict. In chapter 7 begins the conflict between Moses and Pharaoh, really between God and Pharaoh. And we have the plagues. You remember, first of all, what we have is the, is the uh, uh, confrontation originally with Pharaoh where 
Pharaoh says, why should I listen to your God? And so Moses tells Aaron to throw his staff down and Aaron's staff becomes a snake. Now we've seen that before, right? Isn't that one of the signs that God gave Moses at the burning bush? Okay. So Aaron's staff becomes a snake. Well, then in a very odd turn of events, the Egyptian magicians throw their staffs, 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 staff. Each of them threw their staff down and they became snakes too. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But then Aaron's snake eats all their snakes. Oh, okay. All right. And then we go and we begin, you know, we've got the, uh, the, the, the plagues. Uh, we've got the water to blood, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. And then we're not going to talk about the, the final one, the death of the firstborn. And I think the plagues were to accomplish several things. One, they were to be assigned to Israel of God's power and care. You see, I don't think Pharaoh was the only one who didn't know who God was. I don't think Pharaoh was the only one who had forgotten what God had done for Joseph and for Jacob. I guess over 450 years and now 2 million people, there were a whole lot of Israelites who didn't know who God was either. Who had not been taught about what God had done for Jacob and Joseph. Maybe didn't even know the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about the land flowing with milk and honey. They didn't know any of this. So they may have had kind of the same reaction that Pharaoh had. Okay, Moses, and that's what Moses was worried about at the burning bush. Okay, Moses, how how do we know that God came and called you? How do we know you're from God? Well, I think the plagues were a way to get not only the Egyptians' attention, but the Israelites' attention as well. They were a part of the judgment by God on Egypt for the harsh treatment of the Israelites. I think they were also an act of war against the gods of Egypt. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But you see, Pharaoh's saying, I don't know your God. I've got my gods. And so Moses' God is going to prove his superiority over the Egyptian gods. And then they were also used to harden Pharaoh's heart. Now... The first three signs, the first sign and the first two plagues are a little interesting to me because the Egyptian magicians could duplicate them. It says that the Egyptian magicians were able to throw down their staves and they became snakes. When Moses is told to turn to stretch out over the Nile River and the Nile River would turn to blood and all the water in Egypt would turn to blood. The Egyptian magicians were able to duplicate that. And then those two, okay. But the third one, well, the second plague, but the third sign 
to me is really strange. And that's the frogs. That's the frogs. God said, or Moses said, that the frogs are going to team up from the Nile River. And they're going everywhere. I mean, they're going in your, in your feeding trough. They're going in your bed. They're going in your bathroom. They're going everywhere you go, there's going to be frogs. You're not going to be able to walk without stepping on squishy frogs. Everywhere. And the Egyptian magicians were able to duplicate that one as well. Now, my question is, if there were all these frogs in the land, why would you want more frogs? Uh, you know, I mean, that, that's one of the questions I have. Why? Okay, so you can, but why? I, why produce more frogs? There's already frogs everywhere. But apparently the Egyptian magicians were able to do these things. Now, do not ask me how. Because I don't know. There's all kinds of theories. One is, is that it was smoke and mirrors. That they really didn't do it. Okay. Wouldn't they have known that the staffs didn't become snakes and Moses and Aaron's staff snake ate their snakes? Wouldn't. So personally, I'm not buying that one. Now, I think that Moses, that Pharaoh in a way represents Satan and his powers. And I believe that we underestimate the power of Satan. When you go to Ephesians chapter 6, and I've told you before, that just scares me to death. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers and the demons of this dark world. You know, that just gives me goosebumps. And there is more going on out there than you or I know. And I think that is why there are so many warnings in both the Old Testament and the New Testament to stay away from the magic arts, to stay away from the witches and the demons and to stay away, stay away from all of that. Stay away from the sorcery. Stay away from all of that. I think there's a reason God is warning us. Now, I don't know how Pharaoh's Egyptian magicians were able to do all of this, but I do know this. While they had power, God's power was greater. Because Aaron's snake ate all their snakes. And maybe the Egyptian magicians could turn the water into blood, but they couldn't turn it off. They couldn't turn it back. Maybe the Egyptian magicians were able to somehow make frogs come up out of the Nile River, but they couldn't make them go away. Only God could do that. And you've heard me talk on this enough. That story about the frogs just totally baffles me. Because Pharaoh calls Moses in and says, get rid of the, we got to get rid of these frogs. Mrs. Pharaoh is about to kill me if I don't get rid of these frogs. Because everywhere she goes, there's frogs. Well, he doesn't say that. But, you know. And so Moses says, okay, you just set the time. You name it. I'll get rid of the frogs. And what does Pharaoh say? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Seriously? 
You want to spend one more night with the frogs? You want to wake up one more morning squishing frogs everywhere? You want to get your biscuits out of the pan and there's frogs in there with the biscuits? One more day? Why would Pharaoh do that? And the only thing I can figure out is pride. Okay, you kind of got me with these frogs things, but, but we're going to do it on my terms. We're going to do it tomorrow. I'm going to show you I can handle one more day of these frogs or whatever. And so we see Moses and Pharaoh going back and forth. We talked about this was a war on the Egyptian gods. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile River. They worshipped the Nile River. And so turning the water into blood, ruining, contaminating the Nile River would have been a direct attack on the gods of Egypt. The gnats and the flies would have been, would have defiled their, the, their places of worship. They had a goddess named Heck. That's H-E-Q-T. I'm not exactly how you pronounce it. But she looked like a frog. And I don't mean she was ugly. I mean, that's the way she was. She was, her image was the image of a frog. And she was the, the goddess of resurrection. And then we got all these frogs all over the place. And then they're all dead. What would have been worse? Having the live frogs or the dead frogs? Ugh. Anyway, that's, I don't know. Anyway. The plague on the livestock that killed all the animals would have killed their cows that they considered to be sacred. And the darkness. You remember that one? The plague of... I think I could have taken frogs. I could have taken gnats. I could have taken flies. I could have taken hail. I could have taken boils. But not the darkness. The only thing worse would have been if we'd have had the frogs and the darkness at the same time. <laughs> I just, okay, I'm creeping myself out now. Yeah. The plague of darkness. The number one God of the Egyptians was Ra, the God of the sun. And God caused darkness on the land. Said, you think your God is something? Out go the lights. Sun is gone. Where's your God now? The other thing is that after the few plagues, the last few plagues only happened on Egypt, not on Goshen, where the Israelites were. I think the first few, God is demonstrating his power to both the Egyptians and the Israelites. But then we come down and God says, now I'm going to tell you whose side I'm on. And all these things happen to the Egyptians and not the Israelites. We've got one more, but we're not going to do it. Yeah, so...
We've got one more point. We'll talk about compromises. We'll talk about that next week or when, whenever it is. But I love that story of Moses and Pharaoh, that confrontation. Because I really believe it is a picture of the confrontation between God and Satan. And at some point in time, we have to choose a side. We have to pick a side. Be on the side that's going to win. Or are we going to be on the side that's going to lose? Satan does have some measure of power in this world. I can't explain it all. I can't, you know, be specific about this or that. But the Bible clearly teaches. In fact, the Bible calls him the God of this world. The ruler of this world. But what the Bible also tells us is he doesn't have the ultimate power. And whatever power Satan has, our God is more powerful. However amazing Satan and his power can be, our God is more amazing. And so we want to follow him. If there's some way we can help or encourage you this evening, we invite you to come now and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D-C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas. 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.